and welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me, I'm Katie Daly. Dan Boner's job involves a very long title, but for the sake of brevity, let's just say Professor Dan is the Director of Bluegrass, Old Time, and Country Music Studies at East Tennessee State University, where he teaches private vocal and instrumental instruction, a senior-level recording capstone course, artistic development, and leads the program's renowned ETSU Bluegrass Pride Band. In this podcast, Dan and Howard discuss the importance of higher education for people who plan to work in the bluegrass field. Remind us what your official title is at East Tennessee State University. Uh, I am director of Bluegrass Old Time and Roots Music Studies in the Department of Appalachian Studies in the College of Arts and Sciences at East Tennessee State University. <laughs> and how, how long have you been with the, with the university? Oh my gosh, I started at ETSU as a student 21 years ago. So in 2000, fall of 2000, uh, which coincidentally happened to be Raymond McLean's first day as a, a teacher, uh, we met at ETSU the same day, uh, and I was a student then, and. Uh, then after I graduated, I did a five-year degree, a music education degree, which is five years at ETSU. I did it in six because I was active with the uh, Bluegrass program, as we just kind of abbreviated to. And uh, after that, I worked one year as an adjunct, as kind of like a two-thirds temp. And then uh, I applied for the assistant director position and became the assistant director in 07. When Raymond McLean, my predecessor, departed, uh, I applied for that position. I was interim director and then hired as director in 2010. Going back a few decades now. All right. <laughs> uh, you were not born into the bosom of uh, bluegrass music. A, l- a lot of people might just assume that you and your family came out of Kentucky or North Carolina or or somewhere down there, as we say. Well, I'm from New Jersey, but I'm from South Jersey, Howard. I mean, come on, you know. Um, Yeah, so, but as you know, being from that part of the region, there were a lot of people who moved out of the mountains and came to the mid-Atlantic region for work, just like they did to Detroit and, you know, Cincinnati and places like that. But Ola Bell Reed, you know, went to Rising Sun, Maryland. Danny Paisley, Bob Paisley, Troy Spencer, uh, Rufus Hill, who I played music with in South Jersey. He was from Newport, Tennessee. Uh, Felix Price played banjo. Uh, I was in the Strings of Gospel with him and Rufus. Felix was from Cosby, Tennessee. Verna Buckner, uh, she was Fred Hanna, who played with Bob Paisley. Uh, They were from Waynesville, North Carolina. So I grew up in a community. There were four Free Will Baptist churches within 10 minutes of each other in Cumberland County, New Jersey, and a lot of hillbillies there, right? So so I grew up. My dad's family moved from West Virginia back in the coal fields. Uh, My dad went to a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, He didn't they didn't have any plumbing in the house and until my grandfather didn't put it in until until 1984 mm-hmm. uh, so you know I all of that ties into my love for bluegrass music and growing up in church and playing bluegrass music and country music the first music I ever heard when I was a kid and I just fell in love with it and I you know learned from all the people in the community and learned how to jam and play and use my ears to to communicate music and so uh, 
So yeah, I'm 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 a Yankee, but uh, but just barely. <laughs> and, and your first exposure again to the music, how old might you have been at the time? When I was three years old, I thought I was George Jones. You know, some kids want to be a fireman uh, or, or something. I wanted to be George Jones. And uh, my dad and mom took me when, like a couple years later to see George Jones in concert. And I was like, I've got, I want to do this the rest of my life. I just was glued to that experience, seeing the twin fiddles, hearing the steel guitar. And, and again, the, the bluegrass music along with it. was all mixed together to me. It was bluegrass and country. It was all part of something that was relative to, to my heritage. Do you recall where, where that first concert was? The Valley Forge Music Fair, uh, just outside of Philadelphia. Um, so, so going back, my, my folks will tell you the story, as parents do, about when I was a year and a half years old, they heard music coming out of one of those big console record players we had in the house, and it was George Jones' record spinning. I was 18 months old. I had climbed into the record player, climbed up it, got into it, and turned George Jones on. And I just was enamored with that sound, the, the singing. the, And it sounded a lot like my family, like my, my great uncle who lived there and was a preacher and played electric guitar in church, played rhythm guitar behind these harmony singers in church. Tiny church, Little Free Will Baptist Church, with these southern people from Kentucky. The shining lights were in our church. They sang beautiful harmonies. Um, the strings of gospel I mentioned. David Reed, Olabel Reed's son, was in that band. I was 11 years old next to him. Uh, so there's there's all this southern culture and history in, in my background. What, what Wasn't there ever a, a conflict between the, uh, the lyrics that you were listening to and some of that, uh, on, because that's smack dab in the middle of the honky-tonk period. And I didn't like kid songs. <laughs> I didn't like kid songs when I was a kid. I liked I liked real songs, and I still do. And, and your parents, I mean, when... They let me listen to If Drinking Don't Kill Me, Her Memory Will, you know? Holy cow. As, <laughs> as long as you went to church every Sunday after I went to church, yeah. Yeah. Um, my dad was became a preacher and still is, and uh, there for a long time, he was adamant that we only did gospel music for a lot of years. and um, But I think he softened his stance or kept a soft stance towards bluegrass because it was so instrumental based and seemed to be relatively uh, non-worldly. I um, see. <laughs> but, uh, but he has definitely softened his stance since those days uh, even. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, when I think of bluegrass music, I, that's what I think of. I think of learning in the community of the people knee to knee and people not understanding it like going to school and my peers not understanding they, they would hear me play i had some really i had a good music teacher who would you know put me on stage and let me pick and flat pick and and stuff but but it was always a little foreign they didn't really know what to do with me hmm. uh, but cecil west who i learned to fiddle from who was a three-time west virginia state champion fiddler who lived in cumberland County. He knew what to do. He used to promote shows at the Chicken Coop in South Jersey with Ivan Sexton and and Del McCurry would come over for thirty dollars a night and play uh, back in the sixties. Uh, Reno and Harold and, and and Smiley they they would they would play there in South Jersey. Their radio shows uh, before my time even. So that that's kind of my heritage. I, I, I and at the same time I'm going to school with regular everyday 
1980s and 90s you know kids growing up loving all the pop culture things uh, that they did too and uh, a guitar I know you as a guitarist and a fiddler and a vocalist is is that where you started out yeah I, my, my great-uncle played guitar in church um, and I just remember the sound of that telecaster that yellow telecaster jingling and jangle the high the high frequencies of that guitar I'll never forget it and and uh, when I was four my grandmother on my mom's side bought me a guitar a little tiny guitar and for about three years I just kind of banged on it didn't know what to do with it and then when I turned seven for Christmas I got an electric guitar with an amp that I could learn on and Uncle Larry showed me G, C, and D and B7 and uh, a funny story the, the, the second week I think he taught me the F chord and anybody who plays guitars knows, knows the F chord uh, you have to hit two strings with one finger. My little tiny seven-year-old fingers were having trouble with that. So after one week, I went back on Saturday morning for a lesson with Uncle Larry, and I tried really hard to get that F chord, and I just, I, it just was dead, a little dead, you know. And and he goes, "Tough love." He goes, uh, "Well, y'all just quit." And I said, "What?" He goes, "Just quit." He said, "Cause you got to have the F chord if you're going to play these songs." He up the neck, and he plays the F chord all over the neck. And he said, "It, it goes here and here and here." If you can't do that, you don't want to play guitar. You just go ahead and quit. Quit playing the guitar. And I guess he realized I could take it, because the next week I came back and I played that F chord, just big old full bar chord F chord, just as just as good as I could. Uh, and so. Uh, I sometimes will use that approach with certain students at ETSU <laughs> if I think they can t if they can take it. You know, if you really want to do something, you you got to work at it. You know, nobody else is going to do it for you. And if you you know if you want to sing harmony, you got to get in there in woodshed and get good at it and learn and listen, and pay attention. Something could rattle their cage a little bit. You know, I understand. Like a football coach or something. So you you played music through your middle school years, your high school years, uh, and somewhere along the line, uh, however you define seriousness, you you got serious about this music. I was serious from the beginning, to be honest. Um, when I was seven years old in church, we had a group called the Shining Lights. I mentioned them from Kentucky. They were from Pikeville, Kentucky. And the daughter played piano and sang, two vocalists, their husband played bass, Uncle Larry played rhythm guitar, and I played rhythm guitar too. And that experience was, you know, we'd go to some local churches and play around, homecomings and and evening concerts and things like that and they were so good to me to let me sit in and learn to play the chords along with them in that setting where you know I I could have been messing them up but they they let me be a part of that experience and enjoy what it was like to share music with other people and then when I was 11 uh, or yeah, when I was 11, I was starting to play the fiddle and the strings of gospel, which they played a little further. I mentioned David Reed. Olabel Reed's son played banjo in that group. Uh, Rufus Hill, who's an excellent, beautiful singer. Verna Buckner, Fred Hanna's sister. Ernie Riddle. They were both from Waynesville, North Carolina. That trio right there was so strong. Such a strong trio. Mountain sound. Waynesville, North Carolina. Newport, Tennessee. Southern singing. Um, just as natural as could be. Um, Kenny West from West Virginia on the bass. 
getting to play fiddle along with them. They take me on the road. We leave out and go to Harvard Grace, Maryland. We go to Pennsylvania. Go to go to somewhere in New Jersey every weekend playing. I was 11 years old, 12 years old, 13. Um, I know I was messing them up on the fiddle, <laughs> you know, scratching along, but through that I was able to, to learn from them and, and I just value that experience that they gave me to, to let me learn how to do that. No fear of public performance at all at, at 11 years old? No, not really, no. Um, I, if anything, it fed me, you know. I, I love being able to share my music with people and, and you know, Rufus Hill, you know, in the Freeville Baptist Church and stuff, you know, it's a very emotional experience when you're sitting in church. And Rufus would sing a song, or, or even the Shining, any of these books, they're singing a song from their heart. And they're communicating with audiences in such a deep and meaningful way. And I would try to learn, how could I play the guitar that would support that? What notes could I choose that would, that would that would help that experience and make people feel even more emotional. Mm -hmm. And then you know, like Uncle Larry told me one time, playing for a funeral, and we were rehearsing backstage, him and my mom and, and me, and I'm playing the, the guitar for them singing, a duet. And I just do a little G run on the guitar in between a phrase. And Uncle Larry, tough love again, he stopped. He said, Are you gonna play that G run when we're doing this funeral? And I said, I don't have to. And he goes, he goes, don't make it about yourself. Don't make that. If you put that G run in at a funeral, you're going to draw attention to you. And that's not where the attention needs to be at that moment. These are things I carry with me. And I, I reference them when I'm teaching my students how to, how to make the audience's experience the best it can be. Um, how to at the moments when you need to show off, show off as big as you can. And at the moments when you need to support a vocalist, what can you do to get away and give them the support they need? When, when did you sort of come to the realization that you were technically competent? That's a, when you're seven years old and you pick things up quickly, people just tell you that you're talented. There's a big problem with that. Um, there's an article called The Perils and Promises of Praise. And I think I fell victim kind of subconsciously to that. I was never heady about it, or I don't think I was egocentric about it because I was taught to be very humble. But I think that sometimes when, when you're told that you're talented and you're good, you rely on that when things become challenging. And you say, well, I, I don't want to take the time to do that because I can already do these things really well. Um, but I, I guess early on I, I realized that I could hear things. I, I, I learned when I was seven that I had perfect pitch. Uh, we were, my mom used to teach at my elementary school as an aide for a couple years and after school I would sometimes hang out with Jay Snyder, the, the music teacher, for just maybe 20 minutes or something and one day we were talking about something and he asked what some pitch was. He's like, I gotta find it. I said, Well, that was a G. He goes, Wait, you know that was a G? I said, Yeah, it was a G. And he kind of tested me on some notes and I told him what they were and and then he told my mom I had perfect pitch. To me it was just, well, I just hear the A and I know it's an A. But so there were there were things that early on I was getting the development thanks to my parents who and my family and friends who 
encouraged me. Um, gosh, you see that now here at IBMA with these kids from California, you know, T.O., and they just they just shred. The, the, the thing that we didn't have then, and you know, you remember this, we there you didn't have the internet, so you didn't have that that acceleration that the young kids have now. They can go online and within a click on their phone, wherever they're at, and see every bit of music they've ever wanted to see. Um, we didn't have that. That 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 technology has accelerated. I think how some of these youngsters are able to grow quickly. So, as you approach the age of many of your students today, so let's say as a senior in high school. Yeah, I'm assuming that you had to make some life decisions yeah. going forward, and you decided to stick with the music at that time, or did you take a detour, perhaps, get involved with other things? In high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was getting bored with education. Um, I just wanted to play music and make music, and I had an English teacher, Joe Missouri, who told me about ETSU. He said, Dan, you need to check out ETSU. they got this bluegrass program. Barry Bales, Adam Steffi, Tim Stafford, Kenny Chesney, they all went through the program. He would, every week or two, he would remind me about that. And the internet was very young then, but Jack Toddle at ETSU even had a website at that point, and it had all this cool information. And I thought, well, I don't know if I can go to college or not, but let's see. I, mean, I was, I had I had pretty good grades, I guess, of doing college prep classes, but I don't just, you know, kids get bored with doing the homework and stuff. I was kind of in that, that vein. And I talked to my guidance counselor my freshman year about, well, what do you want to do, Dan? You know, you're not doing well in algebra. I'm like, well, I think I'd like to go to college. My brother's going to college, and, you know, I. Well, what do you do? I play music. I play bluegrass music. I play the fiddle. I do all this. I like to record. I like, oh, really? Well, let's look at Votech for you. Let's see. You like working on cars? How about plumbing? I said, well, yeah, I like working on cars and plumbing, but I think I'd like to go. They fired that woman. And a new guidance counselor came in. Her name was Juanita Davis. And my sophomore year, junior year, she, she realized that I had something. She used to work with the gospel choir that we had. And... She said, Dan, you're, you're a musician. Where do you want to go to college? And I said, well, there's this school that I've heard about. She said, well, let's call that school and see what it would take to get you down there. And I learned because it's a regional state institution that it maybe was a little bit more affordable than some places. My folks didn't have a lot of money. Um, and I was going to have to take on a lot of loans out of state. There were no out-of-state scholarships for me at that point. The next year, they ended up with some out-of-state scholarships that I didn't get to take advantage of. But all of that to say that she helped me apply to the school. I went and visited. I met Christian Segaray, who was assistant director for a year while Jack was on sabbatical. And uh, it's the only school I applied to. And I called the music department and said, I'd like to major in bluegrass. And they laughed and said, oh, you can't major in bluegrass. It's not. You can major in music and take some bluegrass classes. So 10 years later, Raymond McLean and I and Jack, we launched the first ever Bachelor of Arts degree of its kind at a state institution. So you went through a bachelor's program? In music ed, yes, vocal music education. And then pursued a, a higher degree, a master's degree? Or? No, that's the weird thing about all this, uh, Howard, is that, and the thing I'm incredibly grateful for, 
at that moment when I graduated with an undergraduate degree, there was no major in bluegrass. And not only that, Raymond and Jack, who were the only two full-time people, neither of them had a music degree. Uh, and Raymond and Jack both only had bachelor's degrees. Jack has a bachelor's degree in political science. Raymond has a bachelor's degree in communications. So I was the first person to come along that I'm aware of with even a music degree. So a bachelor's degree in music, in voice, and they were so gracious to let me work part-time and, and get, some, get some experience. In addition to the performing and the experience that I've had teaching privately since I was a kid, I used to teach lessons. Um, when I was like 14, I had like 10 students that would come to my house each week. But not certainly not higher ed. And somehow they convinced the department chair and the dean and the provost that I was worth hiring. With, I was only like 25 years old. I, d I don't think that would happen today. I think I think things are different now. But there were there nobody would ever apply for a job at ETSU with a higher ed degree of any sort. They just you know not there were no degrees in bluegrass and you know if they came in and they had a music degree, they might have been a band director who played and chopped a little mandolin, but they weren't what that program needed. So I'm, an, I'm forever grateful and still perplexed and <laughs> confused as to, to, to why that would, why they would go to bat for me and make that happen. At the time that you pursued your bachelor's degree, you were also performing as well? Yes. Um, so I was in the ETSU senior band, which eventually be called the ETSU Bluegrass Pride Band, uh, under Raymond's uh, direction. And yeah, gosh, my freshman year, within that first year of school, I got to tour Italy, sing at the Vatican, St. Mark's Basilica, all over the country, see all the historical sites. And then three months later, toured Japan, got to meet Sab Watanabe, Masuo Sasabe, Taro Inoue, all these, all these people do a whole concert tour, perform at festivals, perform at venues, and get to make lifelong friends. It changed my life, Howard. I, I didn't know that that was something that was possible. And all because of that university and the people at the university that wanted to make bluegrass grow. And I just, I just wanted to always give back in some way. And that's, that's, what, that's you know, progressively, you know, getting to perform at the White House, performing in England and Scotland and all these things, NATO uh, headquarters in Belgium with the Bluegrass Pride Band, um, the Smithsonian National Folklife Festival in 2003, huge, big event. You must have went to that. I must have gone to that. Um, these are experiences that, that absolutely changed my life, and, and I, you know, I want to give back to the students that I work with now similar types of experiences. If you could talk a little bit about it. You, you graduated with a bachelor's degree, and, it, and at this point, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, you decided you wanted to make education a, a career. And, and today you're known as uh, one of the preeminent uh, bluegrass educators uh, out, out there. How, how did you come to that decision? And, uh, 
as I was getting my undergraduate degree in music ed, I, I thought it would be nice to have a nine-month job teaching high school choir or something and then, you know, go on the road in the summer and play festivals, start a band. Organically, it happened differently. Um, I, I started with other people, you know, touring. I used to tour with Takaharu Kunimoto in Japan and uh, did that for several years. I think the opportunity, it just happened to be at the right moment that, you know, I was pretty good at, at explaining musical concepts to students, or at least I thought I was, um, to help them get better at their music. I guess Raymond and Jack may have seen that. And it just so happened that Jack retired and there was a position available. The year before that, they had a failed search because they couldn't find somebody. If if they would have found somebody, we might not be talking in this capacity right now. We might be talking about something else. But the timing seemed to, to, to fit just right. There was an assistant director position that paid a salary with benefits and had the summers off. And I thought, I'll, I will try my darndest to get this job and have a steady income and benefits and the potential to grow into something. And raise a family and support them. Absolutely. Yeah. Except I don't have kids, just dogs. Well, <laughs> and a pig. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a macaw that yells at me. Um, yeah, so it was more like that the opportunity presented itself and I happened to be there. It, it wasn't, I, I would never have gone on to get a master's or doctoral or anything like that, I don't think. And I still haven't. Yeah. Um, but uh, you still have this uh, through all of those years and, and up until almost recently. Uh, you, you, you still were that dual track, you're a performer, Dan, Dan Boner, mm -hmm. and educator, professor, yeah. Dan Boner. And you managed for quite a long time to sort of balance the two and still not be totally crazy. That's or maybe right. you are totally crazy. Yeah, no, I definitely am. Um, I, I tend, like a lot of musicians, I. I I'll get bored if I do the same thing for too long, so I like to jump around. And, and a, a, an academic job like this is really nice because a lot of projects come along and there's a schedule that is ever-changing. You know, we're teaching through the school year and then you get a little month break in the winter and that's the point when I want to do recording. So I'll, I'll take on some artists and produce some records and engineer some recordings and then back to teaching again and taking the pride band to Florida or California or somewhere else, still getting to be involved with the bluegrass community. And then, uh, you know, in the summertime, there are other big projects to do. Uh, when I was touring with Becky Buller, uh, that was, gosh, what a great experience to, to have with, with those wonderful people. Such a low energy band. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the best thing, about being in the Becky Buller band for six years, we were all a little bit older, you know, we're all at least in our 30s or 40s, and so we had different priorities from a band that's in their early 20s, I think. Um, Becky would say, I want to play good shows with good people for good money and go home. And we never had anybody on the road that we had to take care of. We didn't have anybody who had a drug problem or an alcohol problem or anything like that. We always had good people. Most of us were all married. 
I think possibly all of us were married and or had fiancés and so we were all committed. There, we, we had a goal. We wanted to make good music and put out good albums and do good shows on stage and go home. Yeah. And that's that was, gosh, what wonderful, wonderful. They're like family, uh, the Becky Bullard Band is. We, we still text each other every day, all of us. Let me ask, from, from a perspective of a uh, of a high schooler today that might be listening to this discussion and say, "Oh, the, this sounds exactly what what I what I think I want to do." What could you set their expectations a little bit? What might happen if they were successful in in joining the program? What we offer are four concentrations. We offer a concentration in bluegrass music profession which is entirely online. So if you want to come to university and meet people and network, ETSU is one of the best places to do that because we everybody knows everybody through that program. And they look to us for, you know, band members for, for professional bands. In that industry concentration, if you work for a couple years on ground at ETSU, once you become a junior senior, if, you, if you're building up your chops as a musician and people are starting to notice, you're probably going to get a job offer from somebody. And you're going to want to finish your degree online through this music in the bluegrass music profession track that we have. Uh, so you can be on a Friday uh, working at the, in the back of the van typing up your paper while you're en route to Bean Blossom with Alan Bybee or whoever you're working with. Um, for people who may not see touring as a musician as their interest, we also have an old-time music concentration, which has a lot to do with the history and the academic slant of researching these styles of music. Uh, Scottish and Irish music studies, and also uh, a concentration in recording uh, technology for musicians. And we've got a million-dollar recording studios where students can learn how to how to use uh, an API console and vintage Neumann microphones and ribbon microphones and all that good stuff. So, uh, and a great engineer, Ben Bateson, who teaches those courses, uh, recording lab manager. He's he's a banjo player and guitar player, multi instrumentalist. He knows how those instruments are supposed to sound. And uh, that's th the best thing we have are faculty too. In addition to the students, students will gravitate towards certain faculty members that they feel like they can get something out of. I've got students that gravitate towards me. Wyatt Rice has students who travel from Japan to learn flat picking from him, knee to knee. Uh, Lee Bidgood, if you're into history and, and or European bluegrass music, you're going to talk to Lee Bidgood and learn a, an extensive amount of, of historical information, and he's a great fiddler. He can play every style of music you can think of. Uh, my colleague Nate Olson, who is a music educator, he's very into the pedagogy of teaching music and how to teach bluegrass music specifically. Um, Roy Andrade, you know, used to play with the Real Time Travelers. He's got a ton of road experience. He can he can speak about artistry and 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 how to approach the stage and and development of of people as as musicians. So. It, it's, it's a great resource. We have, we have physical archives as well, uh, which of course the Delaware Valley Bluegrass Collection is a part of. We, we have that and it's being digitized. And um, if students want to hear a recording from 1972 when Marty Stewart joined Lester Flat 
on the stage there in Glasgow for the first time. It's right there in our archive. Is it also part of of the discussion with a student that wants to get serious about performance that there is some education about the music business itself and setting their expectations about what they might find on the road or what opportunities might be available to them when they graduate. That's right, yeah. You can take courses in event promotion, in marketing, in uh, you know how the recording business is working today, which is ever-changing. Uh, finance how to manage your books. A lot of students show up and they, they don't, they've never done their own taxes. How do, you, how do you take care of all those 1099s and prepare everything for the end of the year? How do you keep track of your expenses? I will say this, bluegrass institutions do not have a sole proprietorship on learning. So you can learn all of these things by getting in a van and traveling down the road and learning it in a different kind of way that a lot of people do and do great at it. Um, I know a lot of people who have taken great advantages of what they learned from business programs in school, um, taking advantage of our program. Uh, there's no guarantee that getting a degree in bluegrass, old time and roots music is going to make you into anything other than hopefully a smarter, well-prepared individual um, who, you know, if you decide that you want to make music your career in some way, you know, we have a lot of people have a lot of experience with that, and we can kind of give you models. You know, do you want to publish instructional materials? Well, we've got people who do that and can help you to learn how to, to write a book and submit it to a publisher for review. Um, or, you know, instructional books or historical books. If you want to learn how to record, we, we can teach you that. Um, if you want to learn how to sing better, if you want to learn G, C, and D, we can teach you that too. Um, if you want to learn how to ring out a sound system in a dismal, horrible room and how to make your sound system as good as it can be, we can teach you how to do that. And, and for those individuals that want to essentially do what you're doing today, which is to become a, a bluegrass music educator at a at, at an institution like uh, East Tennessee State University, what, what, what might they be doing? I'm, I, it's, I'm, I'm guessing, maybe erroneously so, that, it's, that there's not a huge market for bluegrass music educators at, at institutions like that. But if they should choose to go through in, in that direction, do you, do you have any thoughts about that? I sure do. Um, Let's start with classical music, general music education. Um, there is a lack of positions available open for, for them. So if you're getting a classical music education degree, you probably are going to be hard up to find a higher ed job. Um, you'll probably have to travel somewhere far, far away from where you live. and. Uh, that's just the reality right now. There's a, there's a saturation of music educators. However, not in bluegrass, because we're always on the lookout. When I hear of somebody who is finishing up a doctoral degree on some bluegrass topic, I want to get to know them. And because, you know, 
if we need to hire people, I think I think gone are the days of hiring a 25-year-old with an undergraduate degree uh, for a tenure-track professorship. I, I just, that is so incredibly rare, and you can't hang your hat on that. Uh, it's kind of an anomaly. But uh, I, I know of some people who are incredible bluegrass musicians and have a real understanding of the history and are great theorists. They, they're smart individuals. If you're one of those people and you want to have a job in higher ed, uh, you, can, you could possibly make a place for yourself at the right institution. If you come along and with the right credentials, you could, you could really just say, here's my credentials, I'd like a job here, I'd like to start a program like this. And I think people would pay attention. I know I'll pay attention <laughs> when I'm trying to hire people. And uh, folks that want to learn more about East Tennessee State University, what's the best way they can? They can go to our website, www.etsu.edu slash bluegrass. Uh, or check out our Facebook page, ETSU Bluegrass. Uh, go, on our, go on YouTube and just type in ETSU Bluegrass Band or ETSU Bluegrass Pride Band. And um, I, I do want to mention, too, we're, we're in the Department of Appalachian Studies. And I see what we do as being very connected to the region, to Appalachia, to the, the history I was telling you about that my family grew up in. Uh, you know, music happens in a place. And even though bluegrass now is all over the country, it, and of the world for that matter, it has its origins in these mountains where our institution happens to be positioned. And it's part of our history, part of our culture. Uh, there's still jam sessions. There's still young people learning this music just every day as, as, as part of the community. And so uh, if you're interested in a, in, a, in a graduate degree, we have a master's degree in Appalachian Studies. It combines, or you can choose from several tracks. We have uh, music, we have humanities, public health. There, there are many directions you can go within Appalachian Studies. Um, and it's so cool to be at an institution where there's all these smart people and each professor has their little area of focus that you just have no idea about until you get to talk to them and then you go down this rabbit hole of like just the most fascinating things, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's just really a great place for, for people to think and share and talk. And you come to ETSU, people are going to understand you. If you, if you love to talk about the backward role of Earl Scruggs and like the pick angle and what strings he used and what kind of head he used and how tight he makes that head. Uh, you know, does he tune it to an A flat or a G or somewhere in between? And how, what drum dial is that going to be? We got people who know about that. You're going to be at home with friends and you're going to be among family at ETSU. That was Dan Boner talking with Howard Parker about the importance of higher education for people planning a career in bluegrass, old-time, or country music. For more information, please email bluegrass at etsu.edu. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on soundcloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and katydaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Uh -huh.